Well, by then we will have won another. So, yeah. All right. So, we're hopefully finishing up. If we do this right, we're finishing up the 19th century today, which would be great. Don't be like that. Anyway, last week we ended up talking about Billy Sunday accepting Christ. Billy Sunday from the Chicago White Stockings, also known as the Cubs. Very good. That's important. Soon to be world champion Cubs. Anyway, so outfielder Billy Sunday becomes this born again Christian back in 1886. By 1891, he decides he's not going to be a professional ball player anymore. So he takes a huge pay cut. He was, he was offered uh, $3,500, which back then was a chunk. Uh, $3,500 a year to accept a position with the YMCA at less than uh, $990 something or other dollars. Back when the YMCA actually meant Young Men's Christians Association, right? I mean, it technically still does now, although a lot of them will say, no, it's Young Men's Community Association or things like that. It used to be Young Men's Christian Association. So it was a ministry thing. And so he's like, you know, I really think I need to put myself into full-time ministry. That's what I need to do. Within a couple of years, he's apprenticing under a, a, a popular evangelist named Chapman. He's learning sermon craft. He's learning basic theology. He's throwing himself into this more and more because he's like this. This is what I was called to do. In 96... He begins developing a strong tent revival program. Um, a, a, we've been talking about in the 19th century, there have been these tent revivals that have gone around, but he's really starting to develop it into its own thing. I mean, they, they, they've had camp revivals, they've had different meetings, but he, he, he has this whole uh, system worked out where he's got uh, a, a tent that goes up, a, a revival show, and he uses his notoriety as a former baseball player to do it. Every place he goes, he's like, you know, Chicago Cubs, because, you know, that's it's a draw. Anyway, but Chicago White Stockings, Billy Sunday, will be here today and talk. And it would, in fact, part of what they do with the temper meetings was for him to play, like, exhibition baseball with people. He'd wear his uniform and go play baseball and then tell them about Jesus. That's what we do with prayer breakfast today. It's like, Mike Singletary will be talking about Jesus. You know, that's right. Anyway. Then he brings his wife now into the into the fold. He 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 was really struggling. He was he had a, a healthy temp revival around the Midwest, but he was struggling to get everything done. Nell was this really good organizer, and so she helped him manage the tour. And all of a sudden, it explodes in this national ministry. He's got all these. Uh, he, he invests into getting advanced men to go and kind of prepare the place for him. Uh, he gets security. He gets custodians. He gets musicians. High quality. He's got one guy in particular who's a really good musician that kind of works the crowd up into an emotional frenzy, and then Billy Sunday bursts onto the stage and, and talks about Jesus. All sorts of things going on. He was famous for this extremely energetic style. It was not hard to find pictures on the internet of Billy Sunday. He was extremely famous. This 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 one over here. Uh, on, the, on the far right, yeah, that was like his most famous thing. You will find a lot of, of pictures on the internet of Billy Sunday doing this kind of thing. That's his, kind of his trademark. Anyway, but he would jump all over the stage. He would vary his pitch, his tone. He would, he would get loud. He would get quiet. He would jump all over the place. He, he was energetic. He was very energetic. Um, he also actually talked about things that most other people don't talk about like 
sex or drinking or what have you, which means that some people loved him. I mean, he was the biggest draw in the United States of his time. People were like, this is awesome, this is a blast, you gotta do this, you gotta, like, finally, a minister I can understand. So some people loved him. An amazing number of people really didn't like Billy Sunday, because they said, no, he's off color. He uses slang, he uses even the occasional naughty word. He's not like a real pastor. Real pastors don't talk like people. Real pastors talk like, you know, I don't know how our pastors talk. But he uses slang, he uses colloquialisms, he uses jokes. He can even be crass, in part because he didn't shy away from things like talking about sex, or talking about drinking, or talking about other social issues, saying, you know, get your heart right in every part of your life. And so there were a number of people that said, no, he's incredibly rough. Now, having read some of his sermons, I mean, yeah, every once in a while he'd slip with something truly inappropriate, but from modern standards, I'm like, actually, no, he just was fairly realistic. It wasn't necessarily that he was crass. It's just that when you realize that most people went to church to hear somebody speak with erudition, to be extremely calm, extremely quiet, to use a lot of big words to avoid contractions. You know, it was it was a time where pastors were meant to be porcelain figures set up on a shelf and enjoyed from a distance. This guy got in your face, and there's a lot of people that didn't like that. And a lot of people that really did. Um, years ago, somebody actually actually associated me with Billy Sunday. And, and, and I don't think they necessarily meant it in a great way. So it was interesting. Anyway, 1915. I will try to work that move into a sermon along with Grout, and we'll do that. 1915, he's preaching to major cities all over the place, sometimes more than 20 times a week. Guy is extremely energetic and busy. So popular, and I love this, he's so popular that secular newspapers are regularly reprinting his sermons. This is a secular newspaper from Jefferson, Missouri. And it's all, the main headline on, the, on front page one, it's a picture of Billy Sunday, and a big thing saying, 516 people turned to Christ. Here, let's reprint his sermon in full, word for word. So much so that during World War One. There were a number of papers that he got more coverage than the war did. So when I say that he was the most important trend-setting, precedent-setting evangelist in the 20, early 20th century, no, seriously, <laughs> he really, really was. Very intense stuff. He also talked about more than just salvation, though. He talked about, like I said, he talked about, um, he preached against child labor. He preached against gender inequality. So he's like, you know, women should have the right to vote, etc., he preached against Kaiser Wilhelm, and he argued the war in Europe is nothing less than, quote, Bill, called him Bill, Kaiser Wilhelm, for short, anyway. Bill against Woodrow, Germany against America, hell against heaven. This is the kind of florid, picture that, but jumping around the stage. He preached against reading novels, he preached against going to the theater, he preached against dancing and card playing and liquor. In fact, uh, he argued, and I love this phrase, that whiskey and beer are all right in their place, but their place is in hell. So, he's an interesting fellow. You either would really like him or probably really not. I don't know. There's a whole lot of Billy Sunday in Billy Sunday. This is just a lot of that. In fact, depending on who you talk to, and a lot of, uh, with, <clears throat> with a lot of historians, they'd say Billy Sunday's preaching was one of the main impetuses to finally 
passing prohibition. Remember, we talked about Carrie Nation kind of building the, the, the foundation for that. And it was Billy Sunday, in large part, that pushed that over the top. And once it got repealed, he argued, no, it should be reinstated. That was important. Let's get back to that. Get back to prohibition. that Billy Sunday preached over 20,000 sermons in his career. This is after he had an entire career as a professional baseball player. And now he's got an entire career doing this. And his name became, for good or for bad, associated with 20th century revivalist preachers. He kind of created how revivalist preachers were done. In fact, Billy Graham talked about wanting to be the next Billy Sunday. So I mean, it's, it's stopping and thinking about how do you, and of course Billy Graham figured out, wait, I can't be the next Billy Sunday, what would there already having been a Billy Sunday? What I need to figure out is how to be the best Billy Graham, right? Yeah. But that's a whole other thing. 1890. Shift gears entirely. Just had Billy Sunday. 1890, the Ghost Dance War leads to a massacre. Have you heard about the Ghost Dance? Okay. Um, We've been talking about the Sioux Wars going on, right? So there have been Sioux Wars going on out west since 1854, ever since that Graton Massacre, where uh, a bunch of soldiers went out to try to get a cow back. A bunch of Sioux had stolen a cow from a settler, and so a bunch of soldiers went out to get the cow back from the Sioux, and the Sioux slaughtered 30 soldiers, and that didn't go over well in the press, and people said, you only you know, good Indian's a dead Indian kind of thing. That's... Kind of all started in 1854. Anyway, it's been going on, but it's been escalating ever since that Battle of the Little Bighorn. That really didn't go over well. And so ever since then, things have gotten a little bit colorful in the United States as it's dealing with the, with the Native Americans. So settlers and the cavalry keep ignoring treaty boundaries. It's like, well, you guys have kind of abused the privilege. We don't care about that. Keep going into Indian lands. Used to be that the army would try to keep settlers out of Indian lands. Tried really hard, actually, to, to uphold the treaties. Now the army's like, yeah, fine, do it. We're actually fine with that. We kind of want the Native Americans gone. Which means the Sioux start regularly ignoring treaty boundaries. This is a nasty cycle to get into. It's just going to keep getting uglier and uglier and uglier. And that's when a guy named Wovoka had a vision. Wovoka was a Paiute sh shaman, and he had a vision about the well, don't, not well, don't control your wife. So, uh, <laughs> well, there's a precedent for that earlier on. Anyway, yeah, that, that, that just went out on the internet. <laughs> People are saying this going, what did he just say? Anyway. Uh, but he learned about that ghost dance from this older shaman, and it's a circle dance um, that you, you dance around as a group, and the idea of this particular dance would be that you will make white men disappear and give Native Americans back their land. That's what's going to happen if you do the ghost dance. So, Volka said, all the tribes need to follow the ghost dance. And he said, I, I had this vision that every Indian was going to be taken up to the sky. The earth is going to crack open and swallow all the white people. And then Indians would be returned to live in peace alongside the ghosts of their ancestors. Thus, the ghost dance. That makes sense, right? It'll work. Is that a good plan? Okay, you shake your head. Why? Okay. We have Caleb nodding and Eric shaking his head. Why are, they, why are you shaking your head? I don't believe that's going to occur. Why not? It's, it's reasonable to assume, isn't it? Isn't it reasonable? You don't think that's reasonable? 
Okay. As he explained, he said, when y'all get home, you have to begin a dance and continue for five days. Dance for four successive nights, and on the last night, continue dancing until the morning of the fifth day, when all must bathe in the river and then return to their homes. I want you to, to do this dance every six weeks. Make a feast at the dance and have food so that everybody can eat. That's the ghost dance. You just dance in a circle for like five days. And on the fifth day, you dance all night long. So what, was, what would that do? You dance for five straight days. On the fifth day, you dance all night long. So like 10 hours, 12 hours. So what would that do? Why would anybody want to do that? Yeah, that's the idea, the whole idea. Remember when we talked about the Sundance? This is another way, without sticking things into your flesh and yanking, that you can create those ecstatic visions. You get utterly exhausted. He's like, you got to make sure that people keep eating or else they'll like, die. But you want to be utterly exhausted so that you have these visions and these, these wild understandings of things, bring out this ecstasy. An Oglala the Lakota chief named Kicking Bear said, oh, also, I learned something from the Mormons. Um, there's magic shirts. <laughs> Sorry. No, but he's like, there's magic shirts that you can wear. They'll protect you. He said, if you wear these special ghost shirts, bullets are going to pass straight through you. I learned this from the Mormons. Who are white. Who are white, yeah. So they know stuff. Protected by these shirts, the Sioux are like, yes, we're going to wear our ghost shirts and we're going to attack the cavalry. We're going to walk right into their gunfire because they won't hurt us. And they get slaughtered. Absolutely slaughtered. And a lot of times people will remember these and say, these horrible massacres by the, the cavalry. Well, part of why they're horrible massacres is because guys walked in with special shirts going, aha, I don't have to duck or hide behind a rock. I can just walk up and you're not going to be able to hurt me. Yeah. Yeah, I still am. The worst or final battle of the Ghost Dance War wasn't even actually a battle. The 7th Cavalry was supposed to go and disarm all these tribes. You know, we're trying not to engage with you, but you guys are getting dangerous. You're shooting. We're going to take away your weapons. They caught up with the tribe of a guy named Spotted Elk at Wounded Knee Creek. And they said, we're going to demand that you surrender your arms. And then we'll be cool, and we'll leave, but you, you can't have any weapons. Their shaman, a guy named Yellowbird, started to dance the ghost dance and started to tell all the young braves, put on your ghost shirts so that the bullets will pass through you we can take these guys on. If you're a soldier and you hear this, you see them doing his ghost dance and you see them putting on their ghost shirts, you can understand why this is getting a little... So then the soldiers attempt to take the rifles away from them, including from a guy named Black Coyote, who's deaf and doesn't understand English and didn't understand what was going on. So he didn't give up his rifle, and he kind of fought him a little bit. Struggles, the rifle goes off, at which point Yellowbird gives a signal, and several young braves, five young braves, whip out their hidden rifles and start shooting at the soldiers. So it's like five braves against a couple hundred soldiers. And the soldiers outgun them and start shooting into the crowd, start shooting everybody, men, women, children. Kill 150 men and women and children. There's 150 more that just go missing. Nasty, nasty, nasty massacre at Wounded Creek. Or at, uh, yeah, uh, Wounded Knee Creek. And the Great Sioux Wars are over. But technically, technically it's all based on Christian theology, isn't it? 
You sit there and you go, didn't, didn't, didn't what Ravoka come up with? Isn't that Christian? The good God, a good God, likes the good guys. And so he's going to take them all up in the air and protect them and then bring them back to a fixed world, right? Isn't that what God said? In the Old Testament, isn't there a time when God cracks up in the world and all the bad people fall in and then he closes back up? Isn't this all Christian theology? All the stuff that we tend to go, it's a little unreasonable to believe that God is going to take good people up in the air to heaven, fix the world, cleanse it of bad people, and then put all the good people back down? That's, that's what's going to happen? Would you agree that that's unreasonable to believe in? Anyway, technically there's a second battle of Wounded Knee Creek. Um, 1973, and Oglala Lakota tribal president Richard Wilson was indicted on multiple charges of corruption. It's a rotten tribal president. And so he was impeached. But the council fell one vote short of actually removing him from office. So even though pretty much everybody thought he was guilty, they didn't get rid of him. So members of the American Indian Movement, AIM, uh, led by activists Carter Camp and Russell Means, took over the town of Wounded Knee and held it hostage for 71 days. Anybody ever hear about this back in 73? Read about this? In, no? Okay. Anyway, I, I'm an old, 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 old man. And so I was actually four years old. It, it, it was, and I actually remember this. I remember hearing about this in the news when I was a little kid that Indians took over a town. And I was like, wait, that still happens? I don't think that still happens. That still happens? They demanded that the State Department declare the city of Wounded Knee, because they were like, Wounded Knee, this is the classic Sioux have been done to town. And so we're going to control it. They said, you got to declare the city of Wounded Knee the territory of an independent Oglala nation. So U.S. Marshals laid siege to the town, and they're like, and there's actually non-crazy people in this town. We can't just, like, shoot it up. After three months, two AIM members are dead. Thirteen were wounded. Um, there was actually a, another activist, uh, a civil rights activist, that went to, to Wounded Knee, and he's like, I'll stand with you. And he was never seen again. Uh, pretty sure that the AIM people shot him dead. So, nasty, nasty situation. Two marshals are wounded. And the town is abandoned for the next 20 years. Nobody wants to live in Wounded Knee. There weren't that many people there in the first place. But pretty much they all moved, and it wasn't until the 90s that people moved back to Wounded Knee. It was that nasty a situation. Interestingly, the Justice Department didn't handle the, the court case very well. And they, they were kind of pushing things through, which meant that the, the, the federal court ended up dropping all charges. They declared a mistrial and said, we can't. You guys have screwed this up enough now that we can't we can't try these guys. So both Carter Camp and Russell Means went free, even though arguably they were complicit in murder and the holding hostage of a United States town for 71 days. In fact, Russell Means went on to use his public notoriety to become an actor. He was in multiple things, like like um, Last of the Mohicans. He was the voice of uh, Paul Houghton and. and Pocahontas, he was in Walker, Texas Ranger, he's in a bunch of different things, he's in Pathfinder. Yeah, that's what Russell means. Yay, he got away with murder! Think about that the next time you watch these movies. Anyway, 1893, 
watching, I remember watching Last of the Mohicans going, I know that guy. How do I know that guy? I know that guy from something. I don't know how I know, but I know that guy. And it wasn't until I was watching Pathfinder, I saw him again, I'm like, oh, that's Russell Means. That's Russell Means, Russell I mean, I'd heard his name, but it took me a second, I'm like, that's Russell Means, Russell Means. That's like David Koresh, Russell Means, right? Got it! Oh, okay, that's that guy. Yeah. Wacky fun. Speaking of indigenous people in the United States government, um, the Kingdom of Hawaii is overthrown, and they, well, let me back up, though. Let me back up, because I was talking about how it's Christian theology, right? What's the danger of kind of inoculating somebody to Christian theology? What's the danger of teaching them Christian theology, sort of? Yeah? Uh, that people can come in afterwards and say, no, 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 it's really this. Well, that's the basic like cult of it. Yeah. What else? I mean, this wasn't a cult coming in and saying, no, it's actually like this. What, what was with Wavoka? What was the danger there? He knew parts of Christian theology. He was able to put it all together. Yeah. I mean, if this is truth and this is powerful truth, what happens if you amend and adapt that powerful truth however you feel like doing it? You pick and choose the bits and snippets that mean something to you. It's inherently dangerous because it is inherently powerful, because it is inherently true, and you are applying it in unhealthy ways. Oh, well, Kingdom of Hawaii. We back up and say they'd had a strong monarchy since King Command. You remember, you've heard, maybe you've heard, King Command classic. Anyway, classic king in Hawaiian history, the early 19th century. King Kamehameha, powerful king. You'll see statues of him all over Hawaii. They'd even allowed missionaries to come to the islands and to thrive. The, the, the Kamehameha line was really good about that. In fact, the missionaries thrived so well, they stayed in Hawaii, and they built lives, and they built profitable businesses, and became Hawaiians themselves. For instance, there's guys named Castle and Cook uh, that started a company called Castle and Cook, that became one of the most powerful businesses in the Hawaiian Islands. They were both missionaries, but now they own cane plantations and tons and tons and tons of money. This is a period depicted in the 1966 Hollywood movie called Hawaii. It's based on the James A. Missioner novel Hawaii, starring Max von Sydow and Julie Andrews. It's not a bad movie. Anyway, but that's, it's, that's this time period when the missionaries are coming and endearing themselves to the Hawaiians. Anyway, so these settlers formed their own missionary party, also called the Reform Party, to involve themselves in politics. Because, you know, now that, we're, now that we are Hawaiians, we can actually change these things for Jesus. Because as we all know, the most helpful and effective thing that Christians can do is involve themselves in running a country, right? Yes, let's make sure that the Christians dictate the laws. That will work out well. 1887, the missionary party forced King uh, Kalakaua, I don't know, I don't know Hawaiian very well, but um, to sign a new constitution into law that both reduced his own powers as king, but also required that lawmakers and voters had to be landowners of large properties. That's important, right? So you disenfranchise two-thirds of the Hawaiian populace, the dark-skinned two-thirds of the Hawaiian populace. Now it's only the rich white people that can vote, and rich white people that can actually be political officials. This is a period depicted in another 1970 Hollywood film called The Hawaiians, with Charlton Heston. And yes, this is the third week in a row that we've had Charlton Heston, and I'm going to see if I can go for four. But the point is, is these two movies always bothered me because I always confuse them. 
Because they're both based on the same James A. Mishner novel. So if you've ever found yourself going, no, which one is which? Yeah, there's a reason. They share the same people, the same, same characters. It feels all the same. Anyway. After he dies, his sister, whose name I'm not even going to try, um, call her Lily, uh, comes to the throne, and Lily says, my, quite possibly, uh, the economy's in tattered. Only the really rich, rich white people are making any money here in Hawaii. So I'm going to start a national lottery. I'm going to license the trade of opium. We're going to try very hard to make some money here in Hawaii. And we're going to write a new constitution. Because my brother should have never signed that thing in the first place. So we're going we're gonna to move the rich white people out. At which point the rich white people say, Shh, no. So the Reform Party Minister of the Interior, Lauren Thurston, who's the grandson of missionaries, because missionaries help things, right? Inherently, yes. Said, no, nope, this is too much. And so he, he led, uh, there's the, the, the militia, the, the, uh, the special branch of the army that protected the, the king and queen were called the Honolulu Rifles, and they were all white. And so he led the militia against Lily and led a coup that was supported by the United States Marine Corps. Which bothered people? that the United States Marine Corps would actually just oust somebody because white people wanted to be in charge. That's not what the Marine Corps does, right? Now, to their, I'll give them a little caveat here. The, the Reform Party's Committee of Safety had informed the State Department that, quote, uh, uh, there was an imminent threat to American lives and property, unquote, in Hawaii. They said, everything's been falling apart here. We need to come and, and, and help build up the order here, because this has gone into chaos and it's dangerous. And apparently, either nobody in the State Department checked that, or they said, well, that's enough of a pretext, as long as we have a rationale. So, so the United States Marines helped get rid of the monarchy there in Hawaii, and a new Republic of Hawaii was created. With a guy named uh, Samuel Dole, wealthy landowner, who's in charge. Okay, yes, enjoy the beard, enjoy the beard. Poor guy. Don't make fun of the guy's beard. His cousin was James Dole, who had a pineapple farm. And thanks to this revolution, became an extremely wealthy pineapple owner, whose company eventually became Dole Fruit Company. So if you ever buy any Dole fruits, thank you, you imperialist white person. <laughs> you just destroyed Hawaii with your Hawaiian pineapples, you rotten human being. Well, that's the fun thing. Grover Cleveland said, hey, that's rotten. You can't do that. No, 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 Hawaii, Republic of Hawaii, you've got to return the monarchy back to the monarchs. This is wrong. This is not what Americans do. And everybody nodded and nobody did anything. Instead, in 1898, after Cleveland finally left office, the Republic of Hawaii became the territory of Hawaii, the United States Territory. And then in 1959, eventually became the state of Hawaii. 1993, President Clinton formally apologized to Hawaii, said, I think we've done you wrong, and gave reparations. A ton of money to Hawaii, saying, really sorry, we're not giving you self-rule back. No, but... Well, yeah, because once you're in the union, you can't get out. That's right. Once you're in the mafia, you're in the mafia. Yeah, once you're in the United States state... You're a United States state. But, you know, we're sorry for that. We're still totally eating the pineapples. So, 
Same year, uh, the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland was formed. Which means I got to back up. Once upon a time, there was a church in Scotland, right? Go to solid Celtic church. We talked about Columba and all the things. Yeah, okay, so good stuff made it. Then, thanks to that Council of Whitby, remember when we talked about them back in 16, no, 664? The Celtic church is officially suppressed, and the Catholic church was in control for nearly a thousand years. So much so that a number of, of Scottish churches and seminaries say, there was no church in Scotland for a thousand years. There were a bunch of Catholics, but there was no church. 1560, now there's a church of Scotland. Do anybody remember who founded it? Who helped found it? It was a very colorful character. Yes, claymore-wielding John Knox. Big guy, whacking people with a big sword. <laughs> yeah, that guy. Very, very intense, militant fellow. They were called Presbyterians because of their emphasis on governance by... A presbytery, which are what? Elders. Based on the, on the Greek word for elders, presbyteros. So, presbyters, elders. So there's an elder form thing. As, uh, uh, hey. Even later still, there's a free church of Scotland that has now broken away from the state church. And they say, no, 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 we want to have an independent church. We want to emphasize individual conversion. We want to remove the control of the state. So free church in 1843, which isn't the United Presbyterian Church of Scotland. That was established in 1847 when a bunch of other small churches came together to form their own group, independent and free which looked a lot like the Free Church. It was, it, was, it was, we want to be independent, like the Free Church, but we want to be independent of the Free Church. But our theology is going to be remarkably similar, and our structure is going to be remarkably similar. Point is, it's not, we're not the same thing, though. Even though the United Presbyterian Church of Scotland merged with the Free Church in 1900 to become the United Free Church of Scotland. But it's not really the same thing, because some members of the Free Church stayed back and retain their own version of the Free Church of Scotland. So the Free Church of Scotland is not the United Free Church of Scotland, which wasn't the United Presbyterian Church of Scotland, which wasn't the... F <laughs> By the way, the United Free Church of Scotland ended up remerging with the State Church of Scotland in uh, 1929 anyway. So, you know, I guess colorful is a good word, I think, for it. Um, none of these is what I'm talking about. Because <laughs> there's a Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland that's formed in 1893, there's something totally different. They were concerned that there's this growing liberality within the Presbyterians. I know it's hard to picture that there might be Presbyterians who are liberal. But uh, <laughs> that, was a, that was a louder thought than it. This is the time period where there's a scholar and pastor named William Robertson Smith, who's this editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica, but also a supporter of higher criticism, that whole JDP thing that we talked about the other day. So that's becoming really big in the Presbyterian movement. And so the Free Presbyterian Church says, no, that's bad. We're going to form a dissident voice to the Free Church, which had been a dissident voice to the State Church, which had been a dissident voice to the Catholic Church, which technically was a dissident voice to the original Celtic Church. I found this, which is just the family tree of Scottish Presbyterian churches in the 19th century, in the early 20th century. So I'm telling you, it's complicated, right? And the reason I say that is because I want to emphasize that even within Protestantism, Protestantism, there's always room to protest, right? There's always something. Because, I mean, you can look at two different, two different churches and you say, there's nothing different between the two of you except that you happen to be two different churches. Like, yeah. 
We do this all the time as Christians. It's like, oh, no, I'm defining myself by what I'm not. I wear ties. I never wear ties. I got a star on my belly. I never had a star on my belly. Which brings us to the Arminian genocide. Wacky fun. Um, we've had this Ottoman Empire over here, this nice green empire for several centuries, right? It's starting to kind of recede, starting to crumple a little bit. And so their Sultan Abdul Hamid II creates his own cavalry called the Hamidiyah, the Mike, the, the Kevinists, you know, they're, they, they're running around and do what he wants them to do. And he says, you know what? We've got Christians in the highlands, the, the Armenian highlands, so knock yourself out. Whatever you want to do to them to get rid of them, do. You've got carte blanche. So they start picking fights, fighting them as violently as they can, and then slaughtering them. In 1894 alone, over 300,000 Christians are killed in Armenia. And no one in Europe did anything. They, they had meetings where they talked about it. The great powers in Europe, the Germans, the, the British, the French, all got together and said, well, this is unconscionable. This is horrible. And we're going to do something. Vague stuff. Rattle your saber. We'll do stuff if you don't stop doing this. Now, help me out here. They were focusing on building up to their own wars. I got that. But hypothetically, what would the United States do today if there were a Muslim power slaughtering people in the Middle East? What would we do? What should we do? Well, shouldn't we go over in there and do something about it? Yeah, sure. We'll train up. We'll on Okay, now, in all seriousness, what should we do? Should the United States being a good Christian power, go across the sovereign borders and help them with their civil dis disturbances. Should we? I disagree with the premise of we're a Christian power. So do I. But should we, should we as a Western power go in there and do something? Or should we do absolutely nothing? Or should we give speeches? What exactly should we do? Or should we open up for more new refugees and say everybody can just leave and come here? What should we do? It is a little bit of a sticky question. Because if, if we say, we'll go in and fight, we start a war. If we, or join a war. If we say, we'll do nothing, well then we sigh and say we're horrible people. If we say, all right, we'll just open our borders. You know, okay, it doesn't do anything to stop the fighting there. It just takes some of the victims out. What do we do? Do we, do we say, okay, no, 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 not fighting. We send a bunch of missionaries over there. Like, you know, actually, we closed it off of that. We're like, no, we, were, we, we you can't go over there. We're not letting you go over there. What are our options? Not a lot of good ones. That's nothing new. They're dealing with this in 1994. By the time it finally ended in the early 1920s, 1.5 million Armenian Christians have been killed. And another 500,000, the ones that were left, because there are about 2 million of them. So, so 1.5, three-quarters of them are dead. Another quarter of them has been forcibly deported. To this day, it is still illegal in Turkey to even discuss the Armenian genocide. You cannot even talk about what happened to the Armenians. It is disallowed. It is illegal. What were you going to say? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's coming up. We'll talk about that next week. 
They don't want to talk about it. Control the flow of information, it never happened. Others around the world starts rethinking, ah, how do I feel about this war thing? War is getting ugly. So in 1894, The Kingdom of God is Within You gets published by Leo Tolstoy. Um, and then Donna gets his big grin out of it. Okay, kind of a litmus test. Kind of a litmus test for how you feel about things. You tend to either read it and go, I love Tolstoy, or you read it and go, this guy's a nut. Or both. Or both. I love his nuttiness. In fact, it was originally banned by the Russian government because it's just too darn nutty. This coming from the guy that wrote, you know, that had written War and Peace and Anna Karenina, you know, it's like, and Tom Clancy has now written something that is banned in the United States. What? What? Alright, back up. Young Leo Tolstoy, rogue of account. He's famous for being a bad student, a compulsive gambler, a constant womanizer. He's a rogue in every sense of the term. But then he spends time in war and in Europe and going, you know, this is intense. He meets uh, Victor Hugo and reads Les Miserables and goes, this, maybe I should stop and think about some different things. One summer he reads Arthur Schopenhauer's book, The World as Will and Representation, and it changes him. In the book, Schopenhauer argues that the human will is the basis for everything there is in the material world. It's all based on what you do and what you wish. And that has some serious implications. First off, he says, there is no God. It's just your will. You're what brings things about. And even if there were a God, he'd just be the ultimate example of this. He'd be some jerk that just makes stuff for his own amusement, for his own will. He does stuff because he feels like doing it. That would be a horrible God. And that's, that, so I, either there is no God or there's a horrible God out there. If the inner life is the only true, causally important thing, the only truth out there, uh, which that would suggest that we should focus on this ascetic, self-referential existence. You should spend time just thinking about you, just thinking about what's important to you. You should not be focused on, uh, you shouldn't be focused on things like gambling and women and things like that. You should be focused on developing your inner morality or inner ethics rather than trying to affect everybody else's truths or things. Thus, man has nothing more in life to do than to, quote, to live and to act in accordance with seeing those things as providing their own inherent benefits. There's a perfect resignation in all things is what he's looking for. Just figure out your unis. That's all that you can really do. That's the core, most um, important thing that you can do. Figure out your unis. So Tolstoy is like, wow, that is so true. That is so true. But I'm going to take this from a Christian perspective. I do think he's, there's a God, and I think he's a good God. I think churches are all horrible. Churches are all horrible, by definition. But I think there's a God, and I think he's a good God. So he's going to become an ascetic as he gets older. He gives away all of his, all of his money. In fact, his disciples convinced him to make all of his books public domain and to retroactively give away all of his royalties to the poor, which left his own family in dire financial straits. Uh, his, his aristocratic wife is like, I'm not real happy with this. And the idea that we should like sell all of our property, sell everything, and we have no money for ourselves, and comfort, sex, food, all, it's all bad stuff. I, I kind of like being comfortable, I kind of like the sex, and I kind of like the financial stability, and I like wine. We can't have any of those things anymore? Because you decided it? Can we talk about this, Leo? He did. There are times he's like, oh, 
Except today, bitch! Oh, I feel bad about it! <laughs> so, he starts giving away everything, and he starts writing more and more about his religious views. And so, to this war-weary Schopenhauer-influenced Tolstoy, true religion isn't about churches or doctrines or any of that stuff, but about the inner man trying to strive to find his own truths about God in perfect resignation. Be your own monk, your own monastery. Work on this with God. So he says, no, all churches are at best delusions and at worst deceptions because you lean on human structures and you've lost this core Christ-sought point of total non-resistance to evil. You do not in any way, shape, or form ever stand against evil. You don't. Because that's some sort of external thing. And you don't follow any kind of structure because that's an external thing. You just work on you. Which, by the way, made the Amish and the Quakers go, Yay, we love Tolstoy! You go, so you love that whole total non-resistance to evil thing. Yeah! You do understand, he said, and all structure and doctrine is bad. Non-resistance to evil! Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you guys are like the most structured people. He said that's all bad. So he created a movement that's known today as Christian anarchism. The idea that you're only responsible for your own self, your own belief, your own life. No one else or any other external structure has any right to oversee any of that. You just do that. Which works! Which works great! Like any version of anarchy, it works spectacularly if everybody else is already perfect and healthy and conscientious. If you're healthy and perfect and conscientious, then the idea of saying nobody should dictate to anybody else, you know, great. All it takes is even one person to be moderately unhealthy, or a little bit selfish, or not particularly thoughtful, and this all starts falling apart, right? Because I've seen movies about anarchy. Anarchists don't, anarchists think that movies about anarchy is all about, we have a agrarian society and we all are happy. It's all the nine-tenths of the planets in Star Trek The Next Generation. And we wear a lot of comfortable burlap and, and have a happy agrarian society as the universe intended. The movies I've seen about anarchy are like Mad Max and Road Warrior. That's anarchy. Because in anarchy, whoever's the strongest dictates. That's the way that works. But a huge cult of Tolstoy erupts. And the government hates it. The, the, the church hates it. Neither of them like this idea of ignore all power structures and just, you know, be. So yes, he created hippies. Tolstoy created hippies. He also influenced other writers and thinkers like a young lawyer named, anybody know who this is? Mohandas Gandhi, who read the book and was profoundly affected by Tolstoy and Tolstoy's understanding of Christianity. He's like, I actually find myself drawn to Christianity. In fact, in 1894, he starts attending church, which is cool. He had a bad existence in South Africa, Gandhi did. He experienced a great deal of racism from the European settlers. He once got kicked off a train for refusing to move. He purchased a first-class seat, but got kicked out because he wasn't allowed. He was forced to ride in the outside seat of a stagecoach, even though he purchased a ticket for the inside seat. So he had to go sit outside next to the driver until somebody else wanted to smoke, and they wanted to go out and sit by the driver. And so they said, you can sit on the footstool thing here. He said, yeah. He got beaten when he refused to move again. He got kicked to the street by a cop one time for walking on a footpath, because that wasn't allowed for people of color thanks to an 1888 law that also said that people of color couldn't be out after 9 o'clock because you know that they're just going to cause trouble. So he didn't have a good experience with that. But he did have some positive experiences with white Christians. He said, no, I, I read Tolstoy's book. I, I had Christian friends who whetted my appetite for knowledge. 
and for which uh, uh, which had become almost in, uh, his appetite for knowledge had become almost insatiable. And they wouldn't leave me in peace, even if I desired to be indifferent. Think about that. He's like, I don't want to hear about Christ. I don't want to know more. And Christian friends pursued me. Even if I wanted to be remaining different, they loved me enough, they cared about me enough to continue to reach out to me. And so I found myself drawn to Christianity. But that's not a model for how we should do evangelism. I don't I don't know why. Because he's saying, even if I were indifferent, I became almost a member of this family, of this Christian family, because they reached out to me. He even started attending this church. He said, I came in contact with another Christian family. At their suggestion, I attended the Wesleyan Church every Sunday. For these days, I also had their standing invitation to dinner. The church didn't make a favorable impression on me. The sermon seemed uninspiring. The congregation didn't strike me as being particularly religious. They were not an assembly of devout souls. They appeared rather to be worldly-minded people going to church for recreation and in conformity to custom. Here at times, I would involuntarily do. I was ashamed, but some of my neighbors, who were in no better case, lightened the shame. I wasn't the only one dozing. It made me feel better. I couldn't go on like this and soon gave up attending the service. My connection with the family I used to visit every Sunday was abruptly broken. In fact, it may be said that I was warned to visit no more. The mom said, you know, you keep talking about Hindu stuff, and I don't know what to say to that, and so you're going to influence my son, so if you could just stop. Don't, don't come around anymore. So you have one family that's saying, even if you're indifferent, my Seal, my love for Christ means I keep reaching out to you and you become like a member of my family. You have another family takes them to an indifferent church and says, because you're not a Christian, we actually don't want to spend time with you because it gets sticky. And his church, not a particularly good one. Help me out here. How might history have gone differently if Gandhi had been to a meaningful, vibrant church where people didn't doze off, where people didn't just come because it was the thing to do? How many things have been different? If Gandhi, we're still Gandhi, but a Christian. How do some American churches and Christians still reflect this kind of nominalism? Where I'm just doing what I've always done. I'm being here for the social things. Like I show up on Sunday because I'm supposed to show up on Sunday. Now you guys ain't chatting. Let me ask you this. How can we in our church work on this? What? I was going to say that uh, some of the, some people do get that taste of Christianity, just like you got the first taste of Christianity from that first. People are like, oh, I like this, and then they go to somewhere and they're like, maybe it's not what I thought. Or, and and so this, they they get the taste, and then they go to somewhere and it's not what they expected. It's, like all those people who start going to church after 9/11 and found that I'm not getting anything different here, I stopped going. And people, you know, there were less people. Exactly. So here's the question. Why do we attend church? Is it so that we get something out of it? Is it so that we um, we have a social contact? Is it so that we, um, we feel churched up? Or is it because we genuinely want to be iron sharpening iron with other Christians? Why are we here? Is it because it's Sunday and you always came to church? Mom and Dad always brought you to church. So he got frustrated with the Christianity that he saw as empty and unfulfilling, turned more toward his Hinduism, more toward social activism, and eventually became a national hero in India, taking the title, or he didn't actually ever like using it, but earning the title Mahatma, or, or the great soul. 
But Gandhi and Tolstoy, not the only people influenced by Schopenhauer. This, he's influencing a lot of people. 1895, The Antichrist is published by a guy named Nietzsche. That's right. Schopenhauer had written about this perfect resignation that he saw as the inmost spirit of Christianity. At its core, Christianity is about contentment, about perfect resignation. Nietzsche said, that is offensive. That's weak. It's repulsive to be resigned to the world. He said, if weakness like that is essential to Christianity, we need to embrace the opposite of that, anti-Christianity. We need to be strong. He says, what is good? All that heightens the feeling of power, the will to power, power itself in man. What's bad? All that proceeds from weakness. What's happiness? The feeling that power increases, that resistance is overcome. He's the opposite of Tolstoy. Now, to Nietzsche, Christian virtues like pity and mercy are really only there to serve to make people feel miserable, or what's worse, to make people comfortable with feeling miserable. You say, well, it's a broken world, but there'll be another world that's better after this. So I'll just sit in this broken world and try to find joy. He says, no! You need to encourage people to have the strength of character to stand up and actually do something to change the world. If the world is miserable, fix it! If there are bad situations, fix it! Don't just sit there and say, well, woe is me. No! Happy is me. Even though the situation is horrible, I will just be joyful in it. He's like, no, if the situation's horrible, fix it. There is an ethos to Nietzsche. For anybody who sits there and goes, Nietzsche's just mean, Nietzsche's just a jerk. No, he's saying you need to fix the world. Do something about it. He wrote the Antichrist in response to Schopenhauer, but it's not his first take on this. In an earlier book called The Gay Science, or The Science of Joy, or How Joyful Wisdom, whatever you want to call it, he wrote about a famous parable where he says, God is dead. God remains dead. And we've killed him. So how are you going to comfort yourself, the murderer of murderers? What's, what can you possibly do once you've killed God to make yourself feel like you've made amends? What possible water is there or atonement is there that you can wash yourself with? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods in order to simply appear worthy of it? Don't we, if we remove God from the equation, don't we have to be the gods that we reinsert in there? Because there is no other God that we can possibly find atonement through. And he didn't mean that we literally killed God, but he's like, we have come to the realization as a human species that there is no God. He isn't a real person. Now we're back to Star Trek Next Generation. We've grown up, we've matured enough to realize there is no God. And that we need to have this secular humanism that finds its own ethos. We've killed God, so we have to kill our former religion. We can't just hold on to the trappings of Christianity once we killed the God that created it. We need to find our own human form of morality. And he's right. If you remove God from the equation, shouldn't you try to figure out how to have a human-shaped religion? you got to find a way that that works, because if everything up to this point has been, well, you've got to lean on something bigger than you, then if, you don't, if you're not careful, it'll just become like in Russia, okay? We remove God. So in the Soviet Union, the state becomes God. And he's like, you don't want that. So you have to find some sort of ethos based on what it means to be a good person if there is no larger absolute truth. In a later book, he argued that logically the ultimate example of improving man, of 
finding that ethos that actually fixes things. Instead of just placating a God by being resigned to our lot, there should be a perfect man. Uh, anybody remember that? Ubermensch, a superman. The ultimate example of a guy dedicated to actually fixing the world and having the intellectual and physical attributes necessary to actually do it. Can you fix the world and actually be strong enough to do it? And willing enough to do it instead of being some Christian pining away in a corner or church basement praying that hopefully somehow things just somehow get better. Which is why Jewish creators use this concept when creating the world's first superhero. They call him the Ubermensch, the Superman, the one who actually wants to help the world and actually has the intellect and physical attributes to do it. And it's based on a Christian messianic mold. Father sends his son to the world who has all these powers but lives like a human being and is raised by human parents. Eventually Superman even dies and rises again. I mean, which just goes to prove that you can mix and match. You go, wait, German Jews quote Nietzsche to build up a Christian Messiah for their Jewish comment. <laughs> Philosophy is a smorgasbord if you don't really think about it. Anyway, so if you've ever wondered how the same world could create both Gandhi and Hitler at the same time, blame Schopenhauer. No, seriously, because you got a young Gandhi drawn to Tolstoy's embracing of Schopenhauer, and a young Hitler drawn to Nietzsche's disdain for Schopenhauer, right? Both of them responding to the same basic arguments, but in different sorts of ways. Mikey fun. 1895. William Saunders Crowdy receives a vision. He's a Civil War veteran, he's chopping wood, and he gets this vision from God telling him that he wants him to redeem Israel out of spiritual and mental bondage as God's prophet. Crowdy is told in his vision that all black Africans are ethnic Israelites. They're actually Hebrews, just as Jewish and just as beloved by God as the people who consider themselves modern Jews. So he began the Church of God and Saints in Christ, celebrating the Jewishness of Jesus. Because Jesus was Jesus wasn't the Son of God, he's just a really good Jew. He's a really good Jewish rabbi. So the Church of God and Saints of Christ is not a Christian church, it's a Jewish synagogue made up of black people. Thanks to Crowdy. And so he began this, this, this thing saying that he was preaching the equality of all races and genders arguing that Judaism should and does provide a complete guide to all phases of human life, moral, social, economic, and political. We all should be good Jews. whole movement of black Hebrews grows out of this, um, which has taken some interesting zigzags over the years. There's a, a, a group called the Commandment Keepers Ethiopian Hebrew Congregation of the Living God Pillar and Ground of Truth, Incorporated, that was found... It trips off the tongue. Founded at home in 1915 by a guy named Wentworth Matthew. The commandment keepers took Crowdy's idea and they expanded it. They argued not only were all black people truly Jewish, but that they were the only truly Jewish people. Because the white Jews, the people who mistakenly think that they're the, the people eating bagels, those people, the white Jews, are actually descendants of the Khazars. Do you remember that group? Remember the Khazar Kaganan that we talked about that was this huge 
power, superpower that ruled over the Black Sea for about 400 years? If you don't, go back and listen to some old stuff, because that was a freaky time period. Make it wait. A Jewish con for 400 years is important here. You go, yeah. Yeah, okay. But he says, yes, all the Jews are descended from them. The real Jews, all black Africans, are descended from Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, who were black, clearly, and who clearly had an affair, and who clearly had offspring, all of which you don't see in Scripture, right? All of this flies what? Okay. So, all right. The Jews are black part, okay, probably not. But, Queen of Sheba might have been. Maybe. Well, probably. Probably. But, um, as far as modern day Jews being Khazars, uh -huh. um, I read recently that they did genetic studies uh -huh. and found it was true. Now, that they, not everybody in the world claims to be Jews, but the people that came out of northern Russia, where the Khazars are from, yes. and moved to Israel in 1948, but they are Khazars. Right, but which is not to say that everybody who considers himself an Orthodox Jew is, is a Khazar. No. But no, there, there's a, oh, I, I have no doubt that there's a large percentage of the Jewish population that has Khazar blood in it. But this flies in the face of everything you know about, it's like, wait, so there weren't any black Africans before? Solomon? Wait, every black African is coming from Solomon and she Wait, what? So it's like, no, and it's technically racist when you think about it. When you say all blacks are the same, just like, you know, Germans and French and English, they're all white. All blacks are the same, and all other people of color, including Middle Eastern Jews, they're just white. It's like, well, I'm not sure that that's uncomfortable with that. I think that's technically racist. So the, were they following? These guys, the, the, the commandment keepers. Oh, the their own version of it. I mean, the, the Orthodox Jews look at them and go, "No," but I mean, especially the other Calvary group. No, they genuinely tried to be as good Jews as they could be. 1979, guy named Hulon Mitchell Jr. took the name Yahweh Ben Yahweh, God Son of God, and began the Nation of Yahweh, which is an interesting title for it when you realize his name is Yahweh. So is this the nation of God or the nation of Ben-Yahweh? Anyway, which the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, which is uh, almost like a little mini ACLU, labeled a black supremacy cult in the same vein as the white Christian identity movement. Like, you're just their version, you're just the same thing. So Yahweh, the guy, not God, taught that whites are the demonic spawn of Esau, and that one of the worst deceptions they've ever foisted is that the Jews of Jerusalem are the actual Jews when the only true Jews are black. They're the only ones. Therefore, it's incumbent on all black people standing against white people in all their forms. European, Latinos, Middle Eastern people, all those white people. Black people need to stand together against them. Ben Yahweh also taught the importance of chastity for everybody but him. Because the prophet of God has needs. It's important. He's very chuckly. We enjoy that. Tellingly, the nation of Yahweh's beliefs all tend to use Christian imagery to speak of Ben Yahweh. Ben Yahweh is the Prince of Peace. He is. Um, on their website, if you click on the tab that says the crucifixion, it'll talk about the Justice Department's unfair smear campaign against Ben Yahweh, which led to his conviction in 1990 on federal racketeering charges related to his ordering of the murder of 14 people. So he spent like 18 years in jail. 
uh, under the, or got an 18-year sentence, I should say. And under the tab, The Ascension, you'll read about how, quote, on Monday, May 7th, 2007, our founder and savior, Yahweh ben Yahweh, completed his first journey on earth and ascended to stand with his father in the heavens. But he'll return again. So it's a quasi-Jewish cult about him being Jesus-ish. 2003, Israel United in Christ is formed, um, quickly becoming famous for their purple shirts and extremely militant evangelism style. Uh, you spend a lot of time in, in, in a city, you'll possibly run into these guys. It's this extremely fast-paced, aggressive thing. One guy reads a portion of scripture, another guy talks over him and says, you don't understand what this really means, what this really means is this. And they'll ask questions from the audience, what do you think it means? And they'll, somebody will be dumb enough to answer them, and they'll say, no, it clearly means this. And it's very intimidating, very in-your-face, and they always have uh, like armed guards and things like that around. Their prophet and founder, a guy named Nathaniel Judah ben Israel, and no, I couldn't find his real name anywhere, um, teaches that women like Beyonce are whores in his estimation. Why? Because they wrongly teach women that they have a place outside the bedroom in the kitchen. Because clearly God says that you're supposed to be barefoot and pregnant. So there's a lot of teachings about, you know, homemaking and things like that. And that white people are, by definition, possessed by Satan. All white people. You're satanic. Since they enslaved God's holy people, broken out by tribe in the Bible. I mean, Judah is the American blacks, Benjamin, clearly the West Indian blacks, and Levi, the Haitian blacks. I mean, the Bible is very, very clear about all this kind of stuff. Which is why interracial relationships are horribly sinful, right? Help me out here. How much do you have to change on this Israel United in Christ poster? How much would you have to change for this to be able to be used by white supremacy groups? <laughs> Pretty much just that? If, that's, if all I do is just change it to whites, does the rest of this more or less work? It is racism. It's white supremacy. In fact, this is their view of, of, of Jesus. Salvation is only going to come when the true black Jesus returns and all whites are rightfully enslaved by all blacks. That's salvation. And when he was called a racist, Ben Israel says, no, no, black racism in America is largely, if not entirely, a response to white racism. And he's got a bit of a point. 1896. Plessy versus Ferguson. Anybody ever hear about this? Okay. It's important you should. 1890, Louisiana had passed a law that forced blacks and whites to sit on different railway trains cars. You're not supposed to share the same vehicles. In 1892, Homer Plessy brought, bought a first-class railway ticket, refused to move for a white man for which he was arrested. Means he's Rosa Parks before Rosa Parks, right? Except unlike Rosa Parks, this is all just a big setup. There's a group called the Committee, again, I'm not French, so the Committee of French People, a Committee of Citizens in New Orleans, specifically asked Homer Plessy to break the law to be a test case. We're going to take this to court, and we're going to declare this unconstitutional. They even hired a detective to make sure that he got arrested for it. They didn't want him accidentally just riding the train and getting off, or being arrested for vagrancy or whatever. They're like, no, we need to make sure you get arrested for this. And the railway company, strangely enough, was aware that he was black when he was buying the first class ticket. But they didn't want to make separate cars. They're like, wait, you want us to build whole new cars for different races, yes. But nobody's going to buy extra tickets. Right. It's the same tickets that we always sold, yes. But we have to make twice as many cars, yes. No. I don't like this rule. 
It's a bad rule. So yes, they were fine with breaking the law. They're like, no, let's get rid of this stupid law. So the railway company knew what was going on. So the case got taken to court where Judge John Howard Ferguson said, actually, I don't think they're breaking the Constitution. There's nothing unconstitutional about operating railways however the state feels like they want to operate it. No matter whether I think it's right or wrong, it's not unconstitutional. So Plessy and the committee appealed to the Louisiana State Supreme Court. And were told the same thing. They're like, nobody's breaking the law. So they appealed to the United States Supreme, the United States Supreme Court, arguing that the law denied Plessy his rights under the 13th and 14th Amendments. If you remember, those are the ones that say there is no slavery and everybody needs equal protection for all citizens, regardless of race and creed, color, all that kind of stuff, right? And the Supreme Court said requiring different races to have different railway cars isn't slavery and doesn't, by definition, provide unequal protection for people of different races. You just have your own cars. It's not unequal. Is it slavery? Is it slavery? So it's not breaking the 13th Amendment. Is it saying you do not get equal protection under the law? So it's not breaking the 14th Amendment. Would a white person have been arrested for riding a black car as well? Theoretically. The official decision led to separate but equal. That's where we get the phrase. There's white drinking fountains and drinking fountains for African Americans as well. Which technically makes segregation essentially constitutional. Which is different than separate but equal. It is still separate but equal, but it's inherently creating division. It's inherently creating hatred. The moment you start focusing on the fact that white people are like this and black people are like this, white people should do this and black people should do that, or Japanese, or whoever, by definition, you create hatred. By definition, you draw lines. And you. So how helpful is it if we, if we do that today? If we say, let's make sure that we emphasize our races. Let's make sure that we make sharp divides. Let's make sure that everybody gets what they need individually and separate from one another. Maybe there are pluses to that, but in general, you're going to create the very racial divides you're at least ostensibly trying to, to, to remove. And even though technically the, 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 the justices say, well, separate doesn't mean that non-whites should be given inferior things, just their own things. It shouldn't be substandard, just their own thing. However, once you do that, almost invariably in point of practice, you have substandard things being given to the race that isn't the one in charge. Oh, everybody just gets their own water fountain. Well, it's, uh, it's not the same water fountain. Everybody gets their own beach. Yeah, but their beach has, like, broken glass on it and stuff. Everybody gets their own schools. Yeah, but their school is, like, patched together with cardboard. Yeah, but nothing unconstitutional. So law of the land until Brown versus the Board of Education decided in 1954 overturning Plessy versus Ferguson. But even then, the decision is controversial and complicated because technically, Plessy versus Ferguson wasn't unconstitutional. Not technically. But in point of practice, separate but equal undermined the whole point of, say, the 14th Amendment, right? So the Supreme Court said, we're going to uphold the heart of the Constitution rather than the letter of the Constitution. And I, I don't disagree with them, because it's offensive. You know, it was wrong, Plessy versus Ferguson. But this sets kind of an important precedent. 
where you say, I know that it doesn't actually break any words in the Constitution, but the point of it breaks the point of the Constitution, therefore we're going to declare it unconstitutional. Like, well, yay, but there's a little scary precedent there. 1898, Spanish-American War breaks out. We'll start off with their next week. How would you summarize? Very, very brief. Any any pattern or patterns you see going on here today? Okay. A. A lot of white people doing a lot of bad things to a lot of people of color. What else? Well, you brought up that point of, of that interesting just glomming onto one part of you know Christianity that kind of influenced you with that inoculation. But seeing all of that and seeing all of the different um, items that we look at today, it just there is so much of that whole of what it could really be if we actually are presenting Christ and his gospel in its entirety, his, his mercy, his grace, his desire for peace, but yet his justice and his true um, you know, anger towards things that's holy. And, um, you know, if, if we could present Christianity in its entirety, people saying, I can use this to my own ends. I can manipulate the situation. I can gain control. And you say, what would have happened if the missionaries had focused on being missionaries in Hawaii? What would have happened if instead of, of trying to eliminate Native Americans, we genuinely tried to reach an understanding and tried to reach out to them with a, with a, with a gospel beyond just controlling and pacifying? What would have happened if... Um, what would have happened if they, if we'd done the whole Schopenhauer thing well? And not everybody did it badly, but I mean, it's like, what if Gandhi had come into good churches that actually reached out in healthy ways? How, how many different ways do you see that people said, I can use my power, I can use Christianity to gain power, or I can use my power as a bludgeon, as opposed to, you know what? I personally can make a difference by reaching out to somebody on an individual level and changing their heart. Pray with me. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for all the different ways that you walk with us, all the different ways that you encourage us, all the different ways that you show us the path you would have us to take. And I pray, Lord, that you be glorified as we genuinely, genuinely try to live that out selflessly. We try to live that out as members of your kingdom, not as members of this world trying to shine this world up to look like our version of your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to love you well and to love those around us well. In your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.